Hey everyone, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here, and it's just my pleasure to open God's Word with you today. We're in a four-week series. We're in week three today of a series called Grace Changes Everything. In week one, Adam talked to us about how grace really does change everything about our lives, and it It transforms us as people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to the things of God. Last week, I spoke about how grace changes mission, how it changes our whole purpose and mission in life. So it comes about helping others to find more life in Jesus. And then this week, week three, we come to grace changes money. Grace changes money. Credit Suisse released a report last year that tells us that Australians are the richest people in the world. Let that sink in. Australians, on a per-person basis, are the richest people in the world. Most of you watching this right now are part of the richest people in the world. Right? Maybe you don't feel like it. Maybe you look at some of your neighbours or different suburbs and you think they're better off than me. But on a per-person basis, the average Australian is, we are on a per-person basis, the richest people in the world. And in 2020, during that year where COVID started to hit Australia, we had huge lockdowns in Queensland. In 2020, Australia recorded the second largest spike in wealth in the world. So while the world was languishing, Australians actually got richer in 2020 and by a lot. We were the second country to 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 increase our wealth the most as individuals. An article from some academics on theconversation.com said that a net wealth of $147,000 puts you among the world's richest 10%. Okay? Might sound like a lot to some of you, might not sound like much to some of you. Because half of Australia's households, they said, half, so one in two people, one in two households, have a net worth of $560,000 or more. So that just based on that, one in two people in Australia are in the top 10% of the world. But I did some research. I looked on house prices in our local area. The average house price is around $650,000, okay? So if you're a homeowner, even if you just owned about 20% of your house, you're on the richest 10% of people in the world. Doesn't matter, that's, that's excluding super, that's including any cash that you've saved, that's including any assets like you have, like cars or anything like that. If you just have a house and that's all you have and you own 20% of it in this area, then you are one, you're part of the 10% richest people in the world. And yet one in two households have far more than that. The article shows that if you have over around $1.3 million as well, you are in the top 1% of richest people in the world. See, the thing is, whether you feel like it or not, we have to understand, we have to be clear as Australians, when we compare to the average person around the globe, we are rich, rich, rich. We are very, very well off and wealthy and privileged here in Australia. And that's actually quite a scary thing. Let me tell you why. In Luke chapter 18, Luke tells a story about Jesus where he meets this rich young man who wanted to know how he could gain eternal life. Now, in Luke's story, he's a rich young ruler. But for our purposes, this could just be a young Australian 
you know, not even aware that they're part of the richest people in the world and they walk up to Jesus with the specialty coffee in their hand and they want to fit in with the Jewish culture so they've got their Birkenstein sandals on and they come up to Jesus. It's this nice Christian young man. He's rich, but he probably doesn't even realize. And he comes up to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? And Jesus says to him, well, well you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. That sort of thing. And this young, nice Christian guy says, I've kept all of those from my youth. I'm a nice dude. And Jesus says to him and looks at him and says, well, there's one thing that you still lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And this rich young man hangs his head in despair because he had great assets. He was wealthy. Money had gotten a grip on his heart and it was too hard to let go. So Jesus looks at him and says in Luke chapter 18, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is, he says. Australians are some of the most unlikely people in the world to enter God's kingdom. Why? Because most of us are rich, rich, rich. Now, it's not bad to be wealthy, but it has its own temptations and dangers. And the Bible has some really stern warnings for those who misuse their wealth. In James chapter 5, it says this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Stern words. Now Jesus is not saying, I'm sorry, James is not saying that being wealthy is bad. But James is warning those who are misusing their wealth that God has entrusted to them. The people he's speaking to are spending it all on themselves. They're indulging. They're living the good life now. And somehow in their greed and their indulgence, they oppress even the poor people. They don't pay them their wages. They don't give them what they deserve, the things that they're producing and that these rich people enjoy. It's not bad to be wealthy but it has its own temptations and dangers. Money has a kind of allure and power over the human heart. And so the Bible sternly warns those who misuse their wealth. I wonder how you manage your money. I wonder how much of your money you share with the poor and the oppressed in our world. The average Australian household spends about 20% on entertainment, holidays, dining out, holidays. They spend about 20%. Whereas one in five taxpaying Aussies give 0%, nothing. The other four in five only give about 
a half a percent to one and a half percent of their income. 0.5 to 1.5 percent of their income. That's crazy. How many times? That's like 20 times more they're spending on their own pleasure than what they give to those who are in need. We're some of the most unlikely people in the world to be saved because the majority of us in Australia, I'm not saying all of us, but the majority, the vast majority of us are rich. And if we're misusing the wealth God has loaned to us, we will enjoy God's good things for a little while, but one day we will weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon us when God judges those who have not helped others with their wealth. Now you might say, hang on, hang on a second, Ben. Are you saying that if I am not generous enough, I'm not, I'm not going to be saved, I'm going to be judged by God? I've got faith in Jesus. I believe, I put my faith in Jesus. Isn't that enough? And my answer would be, well, it depends on what kind of faith you're talking about. You see, Martin Luther had a really helpful saying. He said, we are saved by faith alone, yes, but not by a faith that remains alone. James 2 verse 14 to 17 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith that has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Genuine saving faith comes along with evidence. It comes along with good deeds and good works, and it bears fruit. To be rich is not evil or wrong. It can actually be a blessing from God. There's verses in the Bible that talk about material wealth sometimes being a blessing for those who trust God. But money and wealth has its own temptations. The power of money, the things it promises to us, is alluring. And the more money you get, the more difficult it can be to give up. You know, um, one of the teenagers in our church recently got a part-time job, and they said to their mum, it's so much harder to give money when you start to earn more of it. When you earn a little bit, it's easy. But when you earn more, it's so hard. And this teenager was only working a part-time job. He's probably not getting paid that much. I wonder if money has a hold in your heart and in my heart. If Jesus told us, like the rich young ruler, to give up everything we own and to sell it and to give it to the poor, would we do it? Would we trust in Jesus and follow him and do what he says? The power that money has over the heart is so strong that it is difficult. No, wait. It is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds a bit harsh. Who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer to that question is this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible with God. You see, it's no coincidence that after Luke tells the story about the rich young ruler who fails to enter the kingdom, that we meet another wealthy person in Luke's gospel. He's wealthy, but this time he's not moral. 
He's basically as sinful as you can get. So it's a double whammy. He's rich and he's morally twisted. Humanly speaking, there is no chance this guy will get into God's kingdom. He is the most unlikely person in the world to be saved. He's rich. Jesus said it's difficult for them to enter. And he's morally twisted. He's morally bankrupt. And yet it's in his story that we discover how it is a rich person can be freed from the power of money. And we find his story in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. There are three scenes to this story. We're going to take a look at one at a time. And the first scene, verses 1 to 4, we meet a wealthy but wanting sinner. A wealthy but wanting sinner. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 4, it says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So the scene opens up and the camera zooms in on Jesus and he's with his disciples and he's walking along the road to Jericho. And it's his final journey, his final stop before he goes to Jerusalem to his death. And the camera pans out from Jesus and his followers and it turns over to the city of Jericho. It's a beautiful city. There were palm trees there. There were sycamore fig trees there. The climate was beautiful all year round. Some historians would say that it was the city of perfumes, of beautiful smelling flowers. It's just a beautiful climate, a beautiful little city, Jericho. And, and this camera just moves in on this city and it zooms in, zooms in, zooms in until we see this prime piece of real estate on top of a hill in Jericho. And as we come in, we see this infinity pool and this man swimming in it. And he gets out of the pool. He motions to one of his servants to bring him his towel. And as he dabs his face, he looks over the city of Jericho and he sees crowds starting to form. He sees people starting to gather on the streets. And so he asks, calls one of his servants over and he asks them, what's going on? Why are the people gathering? And his servant says to him, haven't you heard Zacchaeus? Jesus of Nazareth is coming to town. Jesus is coming. So Zacchaeus, he gives his towel and he thinks to himself, I'm going to see this Jesus. So he gets himself ready. He leaves the house. He walks in the streets. And as he's walking through the streets of Jericho, people are giving him nasty looks. People are snarling at him. People are frowning at him. People are not really letting him get past as he's rushing to get his place to see Jesus. Why is that? Well, the text tells us that he was the chief tax collector. There are tax collectors mentioned everywhere in the Bible, but this is the only time we meet a chief tax collector. In Luke's gospel, tax collectors and sinners were mentioned all the time together. They're basically the synonymous. So when we meet the chief tax collector, it's like we are meeting in Luke's gospel, the chief of sinners. And it says he's not only this great sinner, he's rich. So it's a double whammy. We think there's no way this guy's going to get saved. And to be a tax collector was not like being an employee at the ATO, all right? To be a tax collector was really to be a trader. It was like a criminal profession. What, what was going on was Rome had conquered Israel. The Roman Empire had entered in, taken over Israel, subjugated them, 
and they placed heavy taxes on the people of Israel. It was a military strategy to weaken people to make sure that they wouldn't rise up and fight again. So the Jewish people were paying not only their religious temple tax, but they were paying this heavy tax to the Romans. The Romans would charge them about 12.5% on everything that could be sold, so like a GST almost. And they were sending these tax collectors to go from house to house to collect extra money from the people on a regular basis to send it to Caesar. Now, what the Romans did was they recruited locals to collect taxes. They basically looked for local collaborators who knew the local scene, knew what people did, knew where people hid their money, who could call people to account and say, hey, no, no, I know you earn this much. You need to give this much to Rome. I know you can afford this. Now, you think no one in the world would want to become a tax collector, right, and betray their people. But the thing is, Rome promised you soldiers. They promised you the power of Rome to go and collect these taxes. And you could, if you'd collected more than what Rome required, they just turned a blind eye to it. It wasn't a big deal. So Jews that became tax collectors were traders. They became tax collectors because they loved money. We've got to, we, we've got to understand how hated tax collectors were. This would be like a Nazi collaborator. Remember the Nazis in World War II, they moved into different places. One of the places they moved into was the Netherlands. And it'd be like a Dutch person collaborating with the Nazis. All the other Dutch people would despise that person. They're a traitor. And this is what a tax collector did. They collaborated with the Roman Empire. They profited from their own people's misery and they made money out of their own people's subjugation. They were like the scum of the earth. These guys were morally bankrupt. They were greedy and they loved money. So this explains why no one in the streets is giving Zacchaeus a happy smile or letting him get through the crowds. People hate him. They do not want to give him what he doesn't deserve. They want to exclude him from everything. You've got to understand that Zacchaeus would have given up so much for money. He would have given up the, the love and the respect and maybe even the relationships with his family, with his neighbors, with his countrymen and women. He would have given up the ability to worship at the synagogue every Sabbath and to worship at the temple. He gave up on his God. He gave up on his religion. He gave up on his family. He gave up on so much because he loved, he loved money. And so Zacchaeus, he's walking through the streets. People are giving him dirty looks. And as he comes to the main road, he, he comes up to the crowd. He tries to make his th- way through, but the crowd closes the gap. And he tries to find another spot, but someone shoves him out of the road. You see, Zacchaeus, it says in verse 3 that he was short, all right? So it would have been no issue for someone to let Zacchaeus at the front and to see, but they didn't want him to see. They wanted to exclude Zacchaeus from seeing Israel's Messiah. And so Zacchaeus, being a shrewd man, he thought, I'm going to get my way with this. I'm going to see Jesus no matter what. So he, he, he ran ahead of the crowd and he found the sycamore fig tree. They were low trees, their branches were low to the ground. And he climbed up into one of the branches, probably looked like a fool, but at least he had found his spot and he was ready to see Jesus when he came past. This is scene one. We meet this wealthy but wanting sinner. 
the Greek word behind the word there where it says in verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, it's this word that means he was desiring Jesus. He was seeking Jesus. That's kind of surprising considering he'd given up on the religion of Israel. If he had even a hint of faith that Jesus might be the Messiah that the Jewish believer, that the Jewish believers believed would come, then he must have been thinking, I'm done for. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to destroy me along with all of Israel's other enemies. But yet he has this want. He's wealthy, but he has this desire to see Jesus. He's spiritually impoverished. He's spiritually poor, and he has this desire to see the Messiah, if this might be him. That's scene one. Now we're ready to go to scene two, where we meet a gracious and generous king. Verses 5 to 7, it says, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. Now Zacchaeus might have just expected to get a little glimpse of Jesus as he walked past. But much to his surprise, as Jesus walks along, he stops at that tree and he looks up and he calls Zacchaeus by name. How did he know his name? There's something divine, there's something mysterious going on here. Even the words where Jesus says in verse 5, I must stay at your house today. The Greek word behind that word must is a word that means it is necessary. I have to. I am compelled to stay at your house today, Zacchaeus. Now, most scholars say this indicates that there was a divine plan going on here. Something compelled Jesus. It wasn't just his travel itinerary. It was grace. It was the grace of God that compelled him to stop and speak to Zacchaeus. And it says that Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The Greek word behind that word gladly, it means that he was happy. He was rejoicing. He felt blessed. He got down. He's rejoicing. He's like, of of course, come home with me. But then we read in verse 7 that the people weren't so glad. They began to mutter and say, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. I mean, We can probably understand that. We could empathize with that. Imagine being one of the locals in Jericho. You see Zacchaeus up in the tree, this traitor, this collaborator, this scumbag. He's oppressed your people. He's profiting off your misery. He's got this infinity pool. He's got this beautiful property. And he's profiting off of the Roman subjugation of Israel. And Jesus, this great teacher, someone who might be the Messiah, stops and speaks to him and wants to eat with him? No way. Zacchaeus deserves none of that. How can Jesus be the guest of this sinner? The grace that God shows to Zacchaeus is absolutely scandalous. Now, we don't know what Jesus said to Zacchaeus while he was in his home. We don't know how long he spent there. But we know that this experience totally transformed Zacchaeus' life. He felt seen by God. You know, when Jesus stopped to look up at him, Zacchaeus might not have realized that this was God in the flesh looking at him. 
in reality, Zacchaeus must have felt like that God had actually seen him, that God was gracious to him to let him have the Messiah in his house. What is going on that God would include Zacchaeus in his divine plan? It's grace. He met a generous and gracious king, and this experience totally transformed him. And we see the evidence of this in the third scene, where we meet a grateful and generous son. In verse 8, it says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. You see, unlike the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus gets it. He doesn't call Jesus good teacher. He calls him, in verse 8, Lord. He realizes that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is God's Messiah. And Zacchaeus had found a new master. You see, before he traded everything from, to, to took away his allegiance from his people and his God, and he gave it to Caesar so that he could get money. He called Caesar Lord. He called money Lord. But here, after experience the scandalous and surprising grace of God, the welcome of God in Jesus, he discovers a new master, and he calls Jesus Lord. This is how a rich person can be saved. This is how a rich person can be saved from the allure and the power of money. It's not moral effort like the rich young ruler. It's grace. It's grace. You see, before this, nothing had the power to take money away from Zacchaeus' heart. Nothing had more power in his heart than money. Not the acceptance of his family and friends. That wasn't enough to to remove the power of money from his life. The acceptance of the church was not enough to stop him going after money. The, the idea of just having a conscience that was at peace, that was right with God and others, was not enough to make him stop going after money through criminal ends. Nothing held sway over him quite like money did until he met Jesus. Until he experienced grace until he saw that God did not hold him at arm's length, that God wasn't like the crowds who excluded him and said, you don't deserve to see Jesus. Get out. We exclude you. We banish you. Now God opened up his arms to Zacchaeus and Jesus and offered him his welcome if he repented of his evil. And Zacchaeus did. He repented because he experienced unbelievable grace and kindness in Jesus. When you feel truly rich in Jesus, money loses its power over your heart. When you feel truly rich in Jesus, money loses its power over your heart. This is the only way a rich person can be saved. It's when they realize that God's presence is richer. It's when the riches of God's grace make their monetary riches feel insignificant and boring. You see, Australians are the richest people in the world. If the stats are right, most of us are in the top 10% of richest people in the world. 
How can an Australian person possibly be saved? They're too rich. They feel too secure. The illusion of power and prosperity has grown too strong. How can an Australian be saved? It's grace alone. It's the grace of Jesus. That is the only answer. To be a Christian, you have to know the grace of Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Paul says to Christians in Corinth, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left his high and lofty heavenly throne and chose to conceal the riches of his divinity in human flesh. He allowed himself to feel hunger, to feel need, to feel tiredness. He was born into a peasant family and he plunged himself right into the spiritual poverty of people like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus might not have realized it at the time, but Jericho was the final stop before Jesus went to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus did not realize where the divine plan of grace was leading Jesus. All he knew is that grace visited his house. Grace compelled Jesus to stop and look at Zacchaeus, to say his name, to give him fellowship, and to rescue and forgive this greedy man. But Zacchaeus didn't realize how much this grace cost Jesus and what this grace would require of Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't realize that someone would still have to pay for the life he lived, for oppressing people and profiting from their misery. God's plan of grace would lead Jesus to Jerusalem and to the cross, where Jesus would take all of Zacchaeus' spiritual poverty and spiritual debt and make it his own and die in his place. This is the cost of grace. Let me ask you, do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what it cost him to show you grace and mercy, to give you a place in his people, to give you a place in his eternal kingdom? It cost him his life. Your gracious acceptance into God's kingdom meant total rejection and abandonment for Jesus at the cross. You see, in Australia, we are rich, 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 materially speaking. But too many are spiritually languishing because our money and our trinkets have blinded us to our spiritual poverty. We are rich sinners. Let's just be honest. All of us have fallen short. God knows I have. If God recorded every moment in my life, every thought that I've ever thought, every word that I've ever said, every action I've ever done, if he recorded that and he said, it's going to be played at church next Sunday, I would make an announcement. I'd say, church is off, everyone. I'm locking the doors. You're not allowed to come in. All of us have fallen short. We haven't been rich toward God and others with our money like we should. You know, our name might be on our bank account, but it actually belongs to God. The whole earth is God's. He created everything. How could our money not be His? Your breath belongs to God. And one day we have to answer for how we have managed His money and His assets. And it's only when we realize that we should be excluded like Zacchaeus was by Israel, that it's only when we realize that our sin deserves judgment just as much as Zacchaeus's did, that we realize how blessed and favored we are to know Jesus. 
when you feel truly rich in Jesus, money loses its power of your heart. Wealth loses its power of your heart. Grace totally changed Zacchaeus. He went from being a wealthy and wanting sinner to a grateful and generous son. He joyfully gave away his money. And this was evidence that meeting Jesus had changed him. In fact, Jesus said in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You see, everyone else said to Zacchaeus, You're a sinner. You're excluded. Get out. Go away. But Jesus extended fellowship to him. Jesus showed him grace and mercy. And he realized that he wasn't done for. That God had not given up on him. That he wasn't a basket case. But that God was willing to forgive him and to give him a place in the family if he repented. And he did. Jesus said he is a son of Abraham. He, he too belongs to Israel, to God's people. He became a grateful and generous son. Jesus didn't even need to tell Zacchaeus to give away his money. The richness of knowing God's grace changed this greedy man into a grateful and generous man. He said, look, Lord, in verse 8, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is crazy. When you think about who he was and what he gave up for money, he's just giving up money like it's nothing here. Zacchaeus gave over and above what was required by the law for his injustice because he had been set free from the love of money. If you have a love of money problem, I don't need to Bible bash you and tell you, you need to give more. You just need to experience the grace of Jesus. You just need to see how worthless money is compared to grace. You need to feel truly rich in Jesus. Because when you do, generosity and giving to the poor just becomes the natural overflow of our gratitude. And notice what practically changed about Zacchaeus' life when he experienced grace. Grace made him just, generous, and content. And we're going to take a look at those three things a little bit further to help us understand as how we should manage our money as God's people who have also experienced grace. Let's take a look at those three things. First, let's look at how grace makes us just. Zacchaeus said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Now we might think, oh, that's generosity. He's being generous. That's so charitable of him. But the Bible would probably put that in a different category. It would put this act in the, in the category of justice of justice. John Stott helpfully summarizes how it was a just and righteous act to help the poor. He says, one of the characteristics of a righteous man, a just man, is that he cares about justice for the poor. He's quoting from the Bible here. He is generous and lends freely, and he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. Whereas, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out, cry out and not be answered. Grace should make us just like Jesus. It should make us just. The Bible places a huge priority on using our money and resources to care for the poor and the oppressed. The Apostle Paul 
in Galatians, he talks about how he met one time with the head honchos in Jerusalem. It was his first time meeting them. And as he left them, they just asked him to remember one thing. Paul says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. You see, the poor and oppressed are so important to God. And this is why we partner with organizations like Compassion, the New Life Orphanage, International Justice Mission, and Open Doors. These guys are doing great work. Compassion, they're helping to release children from poverty, and we're partnering with them in Northern Thailand. The New Life Orphanage, self-explanatory. They're, they're helping orphans, and they're doing that work in Myanmar. International Justice Mission is all about helping to end modern-day slavery. It helps the poor and the oppressed around the world. And Open Doors is an organization that serves the persecuted church, Christians who are oppressed, Christians who are living in terrible conditions where they're being taken advantage of, they're being persecuted, they're being intimidated to give up their faith. These are organizations that are doing good work. I trust these guys personally. If you want to take up God's call to do justice with your money, grace makes us just, remember, then you can take a next step by perhaps looking into these organizations. If you want to find out more, just scan the QR code in front of you in the seats. And if you fill out that form, just tell us what you're interested in. If there's a particular organization or if you just want links to all of their websites, whatever, we'll get you the information you need to help you to support God's work of justice in this world. Grace makes us just. Next, we see in Zacchaeus' response that grace makes us generous. Luke 19, verse 8. He said, And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, Zacchaeus isn't just doing the right thing here, he's going over and above. He's being generous. The grace of God has made this greedy man generous. And generosity is one of the key marks of God's people. Paul talks about this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world, that's most Australians, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, we can enjoy what God has given us, but it's how we use it. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. How are we using the riches God has provided us? You know, I said it earlier, one in five Aussies give away nothing. The other four in five only give an average of a half to one and a half percent of their income. The stats for Christians are only slightly better. The stats say that Aussie Christians give 25 to 3% of their income away. Whereas the average Old Testament believer was commanded to give way more than that in the Old Testament. You see, there were all these different kinds of tithes in the Old Testament. And it's a bit hard to add them all up. They had to give tithes of their grain. If an animal was born, they'd tithe, they'd tithe so many different ways. So it's hard to work it out, but scholars agree that they gave well above 10%, probably something more like around 20% of their income they gave. And that was before the grace of God had been displayed extravagantly in Jesus. That was before the Holy Spirit had been given freely to all believers. These guys were commanded to give 20%. 
2.5 to 3% is not okay for the church in Australia. Not when the average Australian household spends about 20% on pleasure, on entertainment like hobbies and holidays and dining out. That would mean Christians spend five to eight times more on their own pleasure than they give towards the work of God's kingdom. Matthew 6 verse 33, Jesus said, and he's talking about money and how we get worried about what we need at times, and he said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that you need, clothing, food, will be given to you as well. How can we say we're living for the kingdom first if we're only giving away such a small amount of our income to the kingdom and we're spending five to eight times more on our own personal pleasure and luxury? We need to put our money where our mouth is. If we claim to have genuine saving faith in Jesus, then there better be fruit and evidence in our lives to go along with it. And yet there are some of you, church, that are really very generous. I'm really encouraged by you. In our survey last year, we found that about 60% of you are really growing well in this area. 60% of you give 5% or more than your income. You're doing better than the average Aussie Christian. And that includes people who give over 10%. That's encouraging. I want to encourage you to keep going, to keep meditating on all that God has given you in Jesus and just to keep being generous, keep being creative about how you can give away money to serve God's kingdom. But our survey also showed that about 40% of you give away less than 5% or nothing at all. Now, for those who gave nothing, there were some legitimate reasons, like some of you give to different charities. You don't give it to here at the church. But the vast majority didn't have a good reason. And that really worries me. It worries me. The Bible has some stern warnings about those who misuse their wealth. If you're an average Aussie, you are rich. And if Like James said, if we hoard up our wealth for ourselves in the last days, if we are not generous toward God and others, then what kind of faith do we have? Is your faith genuine? I just want to plead with you to check your heart. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who became poor for your sake, who made you spiritually rich? If you do, what are you doing with the money that God has entrusted to you? God's word is super serious on this issue. Grace should make us generous. The last thing we learn from Zacchaeus' changed relationship with money is that grace makes us content. Zacchaeus gave away half of his possessions. He gave away four times as much as he stole to to those he stole from. Obviously, this was a big lifestyle reduction for him. Because he'd experienced such grace in Jesus, he was joyful. He was excited. He's like, look, Lord, look at what I'm doing. He was excited. He was content to lose a whole lot of what he had, or a whole lot of his wealth, because grace had visited him. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, 
and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now that's challenging. That's just food and clothing, Paul's saying there. We'll be content with food and clothing. (laughs) We usually get so much more than that in Australia. What about gym membership and holidays and private school education and dining out and eating takeaway? It's going to be a little bit different for everyone, but we need to be content with God providing for our necessities. But we need to check our hearts. There are some parameters and some guidelines. I think a really good guideline is to say, am I spending more on my own personal pleasure than I'm spending on God's kingdom? That's a good guideline. It's a challenging one, but it's good because Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom. But around that, some of us are going to have different ideas of what might be necessary and not. Let's not be judgmental over one another about that. God just doesn't promise us any more than our necessities, our food, our clothing, that sort of thing. Any more than that is a huge blessing that, yes, we can enjoy. We can enjoy what we're given, but overall, we need to be managing it. We can enjoy some of it, but we need to be generous with it too. Remember that you're managing God's money. Are you doing justice with it, helping the poor? Are you being generous with it? Are you content with what you have? When you feel truly rich in Jesus, money loses its power over your heart. And this grace makes us just, generous, and content. Let me finish with these words from Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. There's a warning here for those of us who trust in our material riches. But what Jesus says here, it sounds, it's, it's stern, but he says it in love. And at the end of this, this passage, he promises to make his home within anyone who opens up to him. Just like Zacchaeus, who gladly welcomed Jesus. If you welcome Jesus, he will fill your heart with such grace that you feel truly rich. Here's his words from Revelation 3. He says to this church, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize, dear son, dear daughter, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes So you can see those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you became poor so that we might become spiritually rich. Jesus, you are amazing. Lord, this is so challenging for us here in Australia, especially because we are some of the richest people in the world. Help us, Lord. Give us grace. 
Help us to experience your grace and your mercy and your undeserved kindness. Help us to feel that and to know that so that we feel truly rich in Jesus and so that money loses its power over our hearts. Lord, help us to be just with the money that you've given us. Help us to be generous and help us to be content and to be grateful for what you've given us, Lord. Free us from the love of money and help us to advance your work in this world through the money you've given us and everything else. It's for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, would you please stand? We're going to respond. And I just want to pray this blessing over you. It's based on the second letter of Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 8. This is what it says. May God bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Amen.